Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking Stock. I'm Anil Stocker. I founded the FinTech Market Finance back in 2011, 2012, and we've been helping small businesses since then. One of the biggest highlights of my job is to talk to entrepreneurs and policymakers and people who are key figures in the UK FinTech scene. And this week, I'm very honored to be speaking with Baroness Susan Kramer, uh, a former banker who turned MP, went into politics and became the Minister of Transport in the coalition government, which was pre the Brexit vote. Um, and then also she became a treasury spokesperson. She's also a life peer in the House of Lords. Welcome to the show, Susan. Well, thank you very much. I should say I was an opposition treasury spokesperson, as it were, uh, so not a government spokesperson. So I want to delve in to start off with uh, because you had a significant career in the private sector before moving into politics. Uh, you were in investment banking in the US. Uh, and then you started an infrastructure investment company with your husband focused on Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. What was that business about? So we saw, and I, I have to admit my husband was the lead in this because he was the fluent German speaker in New Eastern Europe better than I. But uh, we realized that when the Berlin Wall came down, and we were there the next weekend, you know, with the kids, chipping our bit off the wall and going through when we could. Uh, well, when that happened, that uh, there was going to be, in effect, a, a finance revolution in Central and Eastern Europe, because so little had been done for so many years. The catch-up on infrastructure. We specialised in transport, and we got dragged into a whole series of other fields as well. And the traditional advisors and the traditional investment banks were really looking for large-scale projects with very high fees that uh, you know they, 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 they wanted things they, that were a high, very high probability of closing. We were very happy to go along and work for on smaller projects to work even on big projects that were far less certain and to act in an advisory role so just as many of the fintechs have made their business by being small and nimble. We made ours by being small and nimble. So that's how it started. We ended up doing a joint venture with Credit Anstalt, uh, then an Austrian bank that was later taken over by uh, Bank Austria. But that was the idea. Small, nimble, seize opportunities and fill all those roles that are generally abandoned by the big boys. Interesting. So how, how then, what prompted you then to think at that point, you know, you had a successful career in banking and, and your own company to get into politics. And how do you go about getting into politics at that stage? You know, you didn't come up through the grassroots, uh, through the traditional ways. How, how did that happen? Well, by accident, and that's not unusual, quite frankly. I'm not a very good career planner. Uh, you may be a good career planner, others may be. I'm absolutely hopeless at this. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing five years from any time in my life. But uh, um, I, I'd always been interested in politics. So if I go back to my university days, I was president of the Oxford Union. I'd done a lot of debating. But I left the UK and went to the States. I got married. I married an American. I never became a citizen. So I had a, a, a contact with politics, but sort of at arm's length, if you might say. So I've always been, to some extent, a political animal. And I always think that when you get angry and there is a real problem, if you want to get it solved, you're eventually going to have to grapple with the sort of, within the political sphere. I was back living in London. I got angry locally, frankly, about expansion at Heathrow Airport and 
decided to go out and do some campaigning. And before I knew it, I found myself involved with the Liberal Democrats as a local political party that shared my views and my sympathies. I very casually filled out some forms to put my name forward to be approved as, a, as an MP candidate. Uh, and things kind of went from there. And I was also then in the right place at the right time. But I suppose the big shift for me, the thing that, that made politics possible, was the election of the first mayor of London. Mm -hmm. As Liberal Democrats, we're a pretty small party in London uh, 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 in terms of voting numbers. Uh, and we basically, nobody thought, I mean, we all knew that no, nobody had a possibility of being elected as mayor from the Liberal Democrats. So I found myself with a fairly open field, putting my name forward as, uh, to be the candidate. Okay. It triggered it for me as I got trapped on a Piccadilly line tube train. I was underground for two hours. I came out seething. I'd been working in Eastern Europe to try and upgrade public transports. And here I was on the most, you people, you're the wrong age. So dilapidated, so unreliable, breaking down the whole time. I mean, clearly deteriorating before one's eyes. And I was so angry that I got hold of the forms, put my name in and ended up as the Lib Dem candidate. And that was an incredibly exciting election. Again, uh, some people may remember that uh, the Labour Party tore itself in shreds choosing a candidate and in the end Ken Livingstone ran as an independent. The Conservative Party ran through candidates that are uh, almost as if they were munchies. Geoffrey Archer was arrested. Uh, so they then struggled to find a new candidate. In the end, it was Steve Norris, but they were all kind of, it was wonderful. It was like being in the middle of a circus. And there was lots of attention on the race because it was going to be the first. We had nine months, hustings up and down London. And I love this city. I mean, I absolutely passionately love London. Uh, and to drive forward change. At that point, we still had a declining population. Transport infrastructure was deteriorating. You could, it, it was a city that looked shabby, like an old lady that had sort of gone down in the world. Uh, and, and I was absolutely determined to play a really serious role. We also had a lot of problem with youth crime and sort of picked up when I was just very strong in, 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 in all of those kinds of areas to push forward policies for change. So, I became addicted, if you like. And, and then elected as MP. I did become MP in my local area, which happened by pure chance to be a Lib Dem uh, stronghold. I didn't choose the area to live in this area. I, I live in one of the loveliest areas uh, so, of London. So I was incredibly lucky. You could say the stars come together. Look, I think if you go into the world, I think politics is a very worthwhile world. And I do wish that many more people with real world and business experience would go into politics. It's not that you can't have some career politicians, but the work that we do really requires that sort of experience and knowledge to be in the mix as well. It's absolutely critical. Uh, uh, and, and frankly, it's fallen out of fashion, I think, in a way. But uh, I think it's crucially important. But you do have to accept when you go into politics that you may get rewarded and you might not get rewarded. I know brilliant people who've worked incredibly hard and got absolutely nowhere. I was lucky. I'm not brilliant, but I did work very hard and I found myself as an MP. I was incredibly lucky 
So you need luck along with everything else. Yes, because I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, founders uh, here in London, and they're doing very well in, in what they're doing in their domain. Often they have very good ideas, but the idea of going into politics is scares many people um, yeah. or feels very intimidating. Um, they don't really know how to do it. Are there any practical tips? I know that you, you had a, a few big breaks. You're a bit lucky, but looking back on it, is there a formula that, that might work? Well, I think it's very hard to be an independent. I mean, I, I honestly think just the real politique is, is there a political party that you feel comfortable with? And if you do, getting involved is the way to test yourself out. And, you know, I, I suppose occasionally, maybe in other parties, but not in ours, you know, you can come in from some very significant background and find yourself at the top of the tree. But most people, go out and slog it. When I first joined the Lib Dems, I was all over London, partly because I was excited by politics. I didn't think it was going to lead anywhere. I was in my late 40s. I mean, did I think I was going to end up as a candidate? Uh, um, I, I, you go out, you help other people, you work on their campaigns, you knock on the doors, you help people with their leafleting, you join in the policy discussions and whatever else. I immersed myself in my spare time in the work of, of party politics. And that, I, I think sometimes people think if you're part of a party, you somehow go through a, a sort of brain lobotomy and become an automaton. You don't. This is a mechanism, if you found people who think like you, to shape the discussion and to shape the thinking. I certainly come from a party where the grassroots does that all the time. Don't necessarily get it right, but huge impact from the grassroots, really engaging getting to know people, building that base. And then when the chance comes to stand for office, there are two things really. One is, you know yourself if you've got something to say, but also other people know if you have something to say and if you'll be able to provide that kind of leadership. So you can make opportunities for yourself. I think many people, frankly, go into it not intending to do so, but, uh, as they become more and more involved and decide, I didn't put all this time and energy in just to, you know, knock on doors uh, and be rebuffed. I put this time and energy in because I think these issues and these values have got to have a stronger voice. And so it does propel you forward. But it, you know, have a, ha have a tough skin is always advisable as well. But, but it, it can also be very powerful if you look at like situations like we're in right now. Uh, you know, crisis situations where you need a deeper knowledge potentially of finance or reacting to economic shocks. Maybe, you know, it is really worth there being someone who has worked in, in the private sector or worked in, in scenarios where that helps. I mean, I'm thinking of Rishi Sunak, which we'll, we'll come back and speak to, but do you think that's helping him? I'm sure it's helping him. I, I do think it's important. Look, you know, competence matters. Uh, so, and you don't become competent at something without experience and without knowledge. So I think those things are important. We have a very strange political system because it's those people who are elected that then form, as it were, the leadership within government. And while we have, I have no criticisms of our civil service, I think there's some things that could be done better, but basically we have a very good, brilliant civil service 
but it will respond, it, it sees its duty as to respond and deliver to the demands of the politicians that are put in place in the various departments and ultimately that sit in the cabinet. It will follow that leadership or it will not act. It doesn't act independently. So having real competence and knowledge at that level is absolutely critical. You can probably get away with an awful lot when times are easy. Yes. But when going gets tough, you really do find out if you've got that embedded that's capability. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to turn a little bit to obviously a sector that we share a mutual interest in, um, which was fintech, um, fin fintech movement that started here in London um, and in the UK, one of the global leaders of it. I, I remember getting together with my co-founders back in 2011, uh, 2012 to start our company, Market Finance. But alongside me, there were other companies, Funding Circle, Go Cardless, um, etc. There were there were you know lots of Zopa is another one uh, that that had started. Um, and we, I often joke that in the early days, under the you know obviously a different administration that we have today, a different government, we were really um, given a lot of attention. We were invited to Downing Street. Uh, there were numerous events. There was events also showcasing us around the world. There was a real drive. Um, and I, I still remember going to Downing Street and one of David Cameron's top aides kind of stood up and said, FinTech is a, is a, is a future industry for us and we want to invest a lot in it um, and promote it around the world. Um, and, then, and then Brexit happened and that all changed <laughs> a little bit. So has, has, has Brexit and now COVID, is this, do you feel that we, we've, We've lost sight of that um, a little bit. And, and you know, what's your view on, on the role of fintech? For well, let me go back to the context of the coalition, because I think it, it's interesting. Um, there's a prior to actually going into government, and of course I went into transport, which is another hat that I wear. Um, that I've been on the board of transport for London. I had quite a transport history in my background as well. But before that, I was on the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards which uh, was a joint committee of both the houses, it was an expanded version of Treasury Select Committee, to try and look at why on earth we had the crisis and the crash in 2008 and 9, and also the knock-on problems. I mean, we looked at uh, the misuse you know, of LIBOR, I mean, just a whole lot of series of problems within the financial services sector. And the political establishment was very conscious that the traditional banking sector had essentially let people down, whether through arrogance or incompetence uh, at the very best, that, uh, um, that reform was needed and that there really needed to be challenge, competition, uh, so, so the spirit was one of bringing in new players, inviting change, that uh, particularly players that employed the latest technology rather than being stuck in sort of legacy technologies with very backward looking attitudes, etc. So it was a time for change. And I think the Cameron-led um, uh, coalition was, was very open. If you look actually at the age too of many of the people they felt an immediate empathy with, with the young entrepreneurs that they met. Uh, they, they felt almost collegiate, if you like, uh, so with, with that particular group. 
so I think there really was openness. And if you remember my, 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 my very, my close colleague, Vince Cable, played a very significant part in getting FinTech off its feet by using um, regional growth fund funding. Uh, so to channel money via the FinTechs through to small business, because he could see so clearly that the big banks were never going to achieve the goals that needed to be achieved if we were ever going to get uh, recovery. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I could go on about all the stories of banking abuse. They're just extraordinary. So, so it was a period, I think, of real openness, this new idea. I've been concerned that, and this is typical, you know, you see the pendulum move in one direction and then it begins to swing back into the other. Uh, and I do think that the major banks, typically with, I mean, arguing that they've made reforms themselves, tend to have the ear of government. They're big, they're powerful, they've got close relationships with Treasury. I don't mean that as an abuse, but just a reality. Uh, and I do think they have now recognized that the fintech industry is a serious challenge. Some of them will link with it, some of them will fight it, but it is a serious challenge. And I, I think they're trying to get the pendulum to swing back. So I mean, very simple things. We've seen some of the FCA rules, which, which in the beginning, if you remember, the FCA was constantly trying to open up to new possibilities. And uh, we had the sandbox and a whole series of different strategies that were extremely supportive. Now you've got an FCA that is much more cautious, quite concerned about the power of fintechs, constantly raising issues of uh, consumer protection, some of which are real and some of which aren't. Uh, so, so we've seen that swing back. And I've been really disappointed that uh, as we look at COVID, I mean, I do not understand after the experience we went through, in 2008, you know, 9, 10, that anybody could expect the UK banking system to be a rapid funnel of large amounts of money into the UK economy. So if you look at the Sybil's program, bounce back is slightly different because it's got humps. You look at Sybil's, I mean, the whole process has been so slow, painfully slow. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can honestly say, hand on heart, because I raised the issue on the first, immediately on the floor of the House of Lords, that had I been in that role, I would have started with the fintechs as the mechanism to get the money out, not the banks. And it seems to me the government's operated completely in the reverse direction. And I honestly don't understand why. Some of that is just not looking back to see, to understand past experience. Yes, I think that that's a really interesting point because I think a lot, you know, talking to the fintech founders uh, when that early phase was happening, there was kind of a little bit of a sense of frustration because we'd built all these systems able to handle really fast decisions and we'd been perfecting over the, the years. Uh, and, the, and the initial communication was very much with the banks. Uh, and we felt a little bit, I mean, it has changed. So subsequently we've now been, you know, we've been accredited and we've got up and running, but there was quite yeah. a big delay. And, and, I, and it feels a little bit, you know, I think, the method was not that, you know, just rely on the fintechs and don't rely on the banks. It was more just around, well, we've invested, the UK has invested in this fintech industry. It seems a shame not to use it when there's a crisis that could benefit from having, you know, fast decisions and more, and getting more funding out to businesses when they need it. And I'm afraid that, you know, I mean, the banks, because they're sensible, they understand how to make money, may well have done a lot of cherry picking. 
Uh, and that's something that always frustrates me because I think if you want players to come in, there ought to be a level playing field. It's one of the reasons why I've been raising constantly the question of why only the banks and uh, um, uh, 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 the um, building societies, in effect, have been able to access the Bank of England's term lending scheme for the cheapest money on God's earth. Uh, it's absolutely insane. Uh, there's just so many kinds, you know, issues. And you're absolutely right. The government is gradually learning. But when you're in a crisis, it really helps if you can do that fast. Uh, and, um, you know, I think many things the Chancellor has done have been good and right. I think the whole direction of travel has, uh, has been one that's been absolutely essential. But I do think it could have been done much more effectively. And somehow that awareness and that knowledge base between 2010-11 and today, somehow that all seemed to get dissipated and lost. And I suspect if the fintech industry had continued to be constantly going through that open door at the senior levels of government, there would have been much greater understanding. Absolutely, absolutely. And do you, uh, what do you think about this, the interventions so far? Has it been enough? You know, they, we read a lot about bounce back loans, uh, Big, big programs in the states as well with the paycheck protection scheme uh, is you know is there a case that you just flood money you know almost helicopter money you just give money to businesses uh, with no checks and um, do you think that that that's uh, the right thing to do I, I suspect there was no choice I mean there are different ways you could do it but you know there are always a dozen ways to skin a cat and I think you can get precious about one route rather than another um, I think we, we identified very early lot, a lot on that um, a lot of money wasn't going to get out the door unless the, the government gave a 100% guarantee. We could see what was happening in continental Europe where that was on offer uh, and the pattern was very different. So we had that, you know, we, we had those kinds of issues. Um, so, I mean, there are, there are details of it that, that you could argue about and you could criticise, but I think the direction of travel was right. All you could do is push money into the economy try and make sure that businesses that need not fail didn't fail but then it's the next phase that is going to be exceedingly challenging and i don't think it's going to be a short phase it's going to be a long phase how we unravel out of this is going to be extremely difficult i'm quite concerned that we should do lot a lot more on the equity side and uh, my criticism of future funding is just the, you know, it, it's, 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 it's dealing with fairly big entities. Uh, it's uh, probably a very good scheme if you're a venture capitalist. Not a good scheme if you're an individual or an angel funder using EIS. I'm not sure why that's not in the scheme. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of gaps and things. I'm also not entirely satisfied with what's been done for self-employed people. Um, it seemed to me HMRC has this thing about people who have personal service companies and it has allowed that in a fairly vindictive way to lead to gaps in the various support schemes for self-employed people. I mean, there's some other gaps in there as well. So I certainly wouldn't say yes to absolutely everything and say it's all been done perfectly, but the, the, tra the, the scale and the, uh, um, the kinds of mechanisms absolutely necessary. And so it sounds like you think the, the recovery is not gonna be V-shaped. It's gonna be rather slow and gradual and, and maybe not even settling at, at, at pre-COVID levels. 
Well, I think, it, I think this is really hard, hard to anticipate. I think we might get a bit of a V, uh, you know, so there will be some, I was talking to some of the car dealers. I mean, I get a sense that uh, sort of car purchases uh, will bounce back, but not all the way back. So I think you might get the first bit of the V and then it starts to sort of plateau out much more and, uh, and to improve much more gradually. I mean, I, I, I won't pretend that I am the world's most skilled economist, but if you look across the globe, so this has been a global crisis and world trade has undoubtedly been crushed, frankly, in, in, in quite a range of areas. But so there's also quite a strong move towards protectionism. I get ready to shake by the shoulders. I mean, you'd be arrested for it, I suppose. But, you know, when I hear someone, and I'm afraid this is a typical Tory kind of statement of, you know, we're going to shorten the supply chains, we're going to redomesticate all kinds of industry, and we're going to export across the world. Well, I mean, make up your mind. Uh, so you can't basically say we want a world in which we import very little, but we export nearly everything. It doesn't work that way. I'm very concerned by, you know, some of the global dynamics. The US-China relationship is just absolutely in the dumps. I, I think we're all going to suffer as a consequence of that. Generally, you see a lot of global political instability. So, I mean, these are not easy times. And then on top of that, we've got climate change. Add to that the fourth industrial revolution, which really requires us to invest. Uh, you know, how we do not have super high-speed broadband everywhere in the UK is completely beyond me. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can see that the challenges are all coming together and stacking. I think this is absolutely huge. And then we were reminded again, I mean, this last weekend, race injustice. But so you can't leave those kinds of travesties within your society and not deal with them and tackle with them. And there's always an economic face to them as well. Regional inequalities, generational inequalities. We've got a huge number of really critical issues on our plate and they're coming stacked together. They're not coming sequentially. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, uh, I, was on a, I was on a call earlier today with some economists and, and they raised the very good point that this recession is quite unique in that it really depends where you sit in the economy and whether you hold assets, whether you don't hold assets. And it seems to be exacerbating the inequalities that were already there even more. So, you know, you see the stock market just, you know, booming while people yeah, are- Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't work that out, I will tell you, you know, first, uh, um, yeah. but uh, I think there's always, some people wrote uh, about an optimism bias. And I think, you know, people get worried, they get anxious and whatever, and then they decide, well, enough of all that. Um, you get this sort of optimism bias. So I am, I'm generally concerned. And I would say to younger people, you know, I come out of that post-war baby boom generation. I'm right at the tail end of it. And in our own way, we were pretty aggressive around a whole series of issues. You know, you just think of a generation that sort of tore up the, um, uh, the attitudes and the, and, and, and the, the, the the approach to life of our parents, very much the steady as you go, 1950s recover from war generation. But, uh, and boy, did it pay off for us. I mean, we've been aggressive, we've taken what we wanted, 
we've, most of us done pretty well financially compared to other people. Uh, and I'd say to, to the current generation, to you and others, you need to get out there and fight. You know, this is a generation that got an awful lot. It's not being very generous about passing it on, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, so, you know, get in there and, 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 and begin to command the agenda is my advice. Interesting advice. Interesting advice. Well, thank you. But I want to, so, so if, you know, if you were still at the treasury and, and you were going to give a few words of advice to, uh, to Rishi Sunak, what would you, uh, what would you say? over the next few months? I find this quite a dilemma. I really do. I'm, I suppose, despite what I say about being aggressive, there's always a part of it. I mean, I, I'm an old-fashioned banker. You describe me as an investment banker, but I actually come from just slightly the generation before that. I did a lot of the early leverage buyouts and uh, quite a lot of the early securitization, so you could call me an investment banker for that reason. But um, I, I was still, you know, steeped in credit analysis on the days when when you made a loan from a bank you kept a large part of it on your books and you got it badly wrong you could take down your institution and you were constantly aware of that and uh, you know, the consequence you come out of that as a very good risk assessor uh, and a good credit analyst so i have that history behind me i know that at this point i, I it seems to me every direction i look in the path is extremely difficult. We can't cut public services, they were cut too far. I think in 2010 there was fat in the system, but there hasn't been now for several years and if we've underinvested in public services and that has got to be corrected and the public will not accept it if we don't. We can't go and cut welfare. I think people who've gone on to universal credit during the COVID pandemic have been shocked, even with the enhanced universal credit, to see how little is available to people who end up on the benefit system. It's really just about destitution. And I don't think that had sunk into people's minds sort of before this time. So there's really nowhere to go there. But, uh, we have got to invest in infrastructure, which is, uh, you know, being underinvested. And that's not just money, it's getting skills into infrastructure, which is almost the greater problem. And indeed, I think we can't just do the traditional stuff and perhaps we need less of the traditional stuff. We need to be in digital age infrastructure. So that's going to be absolutely essential. We need to completely revamp education and people need to be skilled. So we need to really build lifelong learning. We probably need to revise the whole curriculum to equip people for the world that's coming. I mean, there's so much that, that's going on on all of these fronts. And then we've got to deal with climate change. And that means shifting to a green economy and transitions always cost. So you look at all of that and you say, how do I finance it? Um, I probably, I think a very few politicians, but I think we have got to start thinking about how we deal with taxes. And you look for the broadest shoulders, but you don't want to dampen enterprise. So you've got to be very careful how you think that whole process through. I certainly think we could use some um, hypothecated taxes, you know, for the health service and social care where the problems are so extreme. And I think people would be very willing to take that on board. But is that going to be enough? But a lot of people now are all just going, not a problem, interest rates are low. We can carry huge amounts of borrowing. And because everybody in the world is in the same place, which wasn't true in 2010, 
when we're compared with other people, we don't look worse, so people won't flee from our bonds, etc. I just a part of me that goes dangerous. You know, I, I just I am really conscious with this sort of very long aged life that I've lived that cycles do actually happen. And interest rates that are low today, maybe you can get away with this for three years, five years, they will start to rise. But uh, um, crises, does anybody think they only come in ones? What do you do when you enter a crisis and you've got no contingency left? I mean, so I think for a chancellor, this is going to be very, very difficult. And I think it's going to require a change in political culture because I suspect, as it were, the chancellor will have to take the risk that interest rates will stay low, at least in the near and possibly into the medium term. But he's going to have to have plan B to be ready to shift the minute you begin, he begins to sense that that, uh, that that isn't true. There's either another shock coming or rates are going to start to rise. Um, there's, uh, you, you, can, you can just anticipate whole ranges of crises that, that could be visited upon us. Uh, and, and I think that's probably a different conversation with the public because instead of saying, I have the perfect solution, aren't I wonderful, support me. You, you end up having a conversation where you say, look, I think these are the next steps we have to take. But you know, we may have to go into reverse or we may have to shift. There's, uh, um, I, 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 and that's not a failure. It's not a U-turn. It's, it's not, a, um, you know, it's not getting an F. It's just that when you run your business, events change, you change the way your business runs. And I do think you've got to get some of that thinking into government. And we talked earlier about people coming out of the fintech world and the business world and going into government. For goodness sake, isn't that something that you would bring to that picture? The understanding that you need to be flexible, that you need to be prepared to shift, that change isn't failure. And I think that's going to be a very important message. Well, that, that was a very, very comprehensive answer. Thank you for sharing the, the, your, your views. You know, I can only agree with a lot of what you said. It feels like big structural change is necessary. Um, uh, and this could be the shift to a completely new way of, of running politics, which might need different types of people in government. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, thank you for sharing your story uh, with us uh, and glad of your support for the fintech sector. Um, and, uh, you know, let's watch the next few years and, and hopefully, as you say, start to take action and, and, and help with this because we, we nothing will change without us all working really hard at it and, and new people coming in and new energy so thank you a lot thanks well, a, lot. And a delight a delight to speak to you and of course i remember those early days of fintech when the entire industry got round for a came for a round table uh, and i think everyone fitted round one table can you imagine uh, so absolutely brother with thank your you, Susan. thank you for your time